For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, find out about the campaign to keep an Apache religious site from becoming a massive copper mine. David Layton shares the hidden history behind Barnum Hill, part of Tucson's Reed Park, best known for its duck pond. How to better care for a loved one who's living with Alzheimer's during the pandemic. And listen to reflections on the winter season in a very short short story by Tucson author Lee Sheehan. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. For more than a decade, the town of Superior, a copper company, indigenous tribes, the federal government, and activists have been in conflict over an area in the Tonto National Forest called Oak Flat. It's a religious site for Apache tribes, but it's also one of the largest undeveloped copper deposits in the world. Earlier this month, the U.S. Forest Service published its final environmental statement, which opened a limited window for ownership of the land to switch to Resolution Copper, the company that's planning to mine Oak Flat. AZPM reporter Emma Gibson talked with Lauren Redness about her new book, Oak Flat, A Fight for Sacred Land in the American West. Redness uses reporting and her own art to discuss the impact a mine would have on the land and people. In your book, you explain that the land is within the Tonto National Forest, and you dive into almost a dozen attempts by Resolution Copper since 2004 to acquire that land. Could you summarize the the first several attempts? We could start at different points, but because the ore is located under the Tonto National Forest, it's public land, so in order for a private mining company to get access to that land, they would have to pass legislation. So for many years, there were efforts to get this legislation created and passed, and it failed over and over and over again, until finally in 2014, just before midnight, the night before a major um, military spending bill came up for a vote, um, the legislation was slipped in as what's called a midnight rider into this, like what's called a must-pass, you know, 2015 um, military spending bill. So it was passed. Obama signed it into law. What that legislation set up was the eventual land transfer of the ore to this private mining company, which is a subsidiary of two of the world's largest mining conglomerates, BHP and Rio Tinto a subsidiary called Resolution Copper, but they would first have to complete what's called an environmental impact statement. So the way that this legislation was written, that environmental impact statement, it's not about what it shows, it's just about going through the process because no matter what the findings of that impact statement are, simply the act of finishing that impact statement would trigger the possibility of the land transfer immediately. If Resolution Copper is allowed to move forward with the mine, how would it impact the environment? The ore would be pulled out from underneath, which would eventually cause a collapse in the surface area. And this is called a subsidence crater. And the subsidence crater that's predicted by the company, not only by opponents, is 
approximately a thousand feet deep and up to two miles wide. You know, you could literally put the Eiffel Tower inside that hole. And so Oak Flat, the land that is sacred to the Apache people, would collapse into that void. And people who are in support of the mine um, really tie it back to jobs and the economy. And how does all of this impact the economy of nearby Superior, Arizona? Yeah, I think it's really interesting to track the company's promises over time. At the beginning of their proposal, they were saying that the mine would lead to 4,000 jobs was the number that they floated most frequently with um, a kind of ripple effect outward in the economy of positive impacts. Now they've scaled back those promises significantly and talk about hundreds of jobs being created. Oak Flat and another area called Apache Leap, which is a cliff where Apache peoples were said to have jumped from and died rather than be captured by U.S. soldiers in around the the late 1800s. You know, these places are culturally and religiously um, important to local indigenous tribe. What's the history of indigenous peoples like the San Carlos Apache who are fighting to protect this area? These are sacred sites that are sacred today for the Apache people today and places that they hope to maintain for their children and grandchildren. So this is very much also about the future of Apache culture and religious practice. Oak Flat has been a burial site. It is a place where holy ceremonies take place. Um, It is also a place where Apache people come and collect important medicinal plants and foodstuffs, in particular the acorn of the old growth trees, the emery oak trees that grow there that are very rare in the desert. Something that I um, remember is that you really draw on the non-native history of Superior. Why did you decide to weave in these these stories? I think it's important to account for the people, all of the different people who are tied to this place and to account for the complexity of these situations in this situation. Um, and I wanted to give voice to people maybe who are supportive of the mine and to understand their reasonings that have led to people f- having choices that in which they're forced maybe to choose a job or the environment or um, you know the vibrancy of their local high school versus effects of having a toxic waste dump just down the road that otherwise they wouldn't choose. What some readers may not expect are your illustrations. You know, personally, I really enjoyed your landscapes. Why did you decide to blend illustrations with nonfiction writing? For me, it is just a really natural way of telling this story because I guess it's the way I experience things, and maybe it's the way many people experience things, right? You you pass through a landscape, you pick up on, um, you know, the way the sun sets over that particular cliff, or, you know, the way a storm builds in the distance and you see it approach you. And for me, there's an immediacy and an emotional power to conveying those ideas and those instances in imagery and they play off of the words in different ways. I like to um, use the images in my books, the artwork in the book, also as devices to pace the story and to, to pull you through different moments where maybe I want you to slow down and really just be immersed in what it feels like to be by a fire at night in this particular place 
or um, you know, to see the stars twinkling overhead and, and to kind of pause there without text and to take that in. Now that you can look back at this whole process, is there any information or historical context that you think is vital to understanding this, this war over Oak Flat? People often want Native people to prove their connection to the land and to prove that it's sacred. And non-Natives approach this with, with doubt and skepticism. But when you look back at the history, I mean, beyond just simply the fact that we should take the word of the people and listen to the elders, the many, many people who have advocated for the sacredness of this land. Also, we look at the history in the United States had to send thousands and thousands of troops to capture this land from the Apaches. And now the same country is asking the Apaches to prove their connections to that land. That seems ironic. Emma Gibson talked with author and illustrator Lauren Redness about her book Oak Flat, A Fight for Sacred Land in the American West. Since that interview was recorded, the San Carlos Apache tribe and indigenous and conservation groups have filed multiple lawsuits to stop the land transfer. One argues that the land around Oak Flat belongs to the Western Apache tribes by treaty, and the transfer would violate their constitutional and religious rights. One of the first places I visited in Tucson when I moved here in 1991 was Reed Park. But it wasn't the zoo. It was the duck pond on the park's south side, a favorite spot of a friend who liked to go birding. Next month, a long-standing plan to expand the Reed Park Zoo will likely result in closing off the hill to the public and draining the pond to make room for a tiger enclosure. The plan is being opposed by some concerned citizens, and the resulting controversy inspired David Layton, the writer of the column Street Smarts for the Arizona Daily Star, to look into the history of Barnum Hill and how it came to be. The namesake for Barnum Hill is a man named Willis Eugene Barnum. According to an obituary found, he is a third cousin to P.T. Barnum, the famous circus man. But what was Willis Barnum's calling? What did he do for a living? Well, Willis Barnum did uh, several things during his lifetime. Um, He worked in mining. He worked in real estate. um, He did a lot of volunteer work or civic duties in Tucson. He worked on the Greens Committee for Randolph Golf Course. What was it that brought him to Tucson initially? It's unknown why he came to Tucson. Um, He was working for the Pullman Car Company, Uh, which worked with the Southern Pacific Railroad. It might have been uh, for the health of himself or his wife. We're not 100% sure, though. So how did he become connected to this piece of land in what we pretty much consider Midtown? Well, in 1919, he took out a lease on 480 acres of land just south of Broadway Boulevard. And at one point, he constructed a house on that property. And the house actually later became the the clubhouse for the golf course. So what kind of a a legacy or reputation do you think that Willis E. Barnum leaves behind? Well, I think Barnum left behind um, a legacy of of civic duty, volunteer work, 
Um, he did many things. He was on the draft board during World War II and the Korean conflict, uh, making the tough decisions of who went off to fight and who could get exempted. And he was very civic-minded. Barnum Rock on Mount Lemmon is actually named for him. He was scout commissioner for the Boy Scouts. And when they created Camp Lawton, they used a rock relatively close by as a lookout for fires, the Boy Scouts did. And they named the rock after Willis E. Barnum. That was one of the things I was unaware of. How natural is Barnum Hill and the duck pond that exists there? I guess what I'm asking, David, is how much um, manpower did it take to create this uh, little oasis? Well, I know the North Pond was created by Gene C. Reed as a reservoir to water or irrigate the golf course. The hill itself was actually created by a company called L.M. White Contracting Company. They had had a street, a very large street grading contract. And as a result of that, they had a ton of leftover dirt. So Gene C. Reed, knowing this, contacted them. They hauled the dirt over and created the 25-foot man-made hill. He then afterwards took, I think it was 100, 100 stones or 150 stones or something like that, that he had gained from a project along Miracle Mile, and he used those stones to create the very nice waterfall that's there on Barnum Hill. You mentioned to me that the opinion piece by Tim Steller and the efforts of the Heart of Reed Park group have inspired a lot of conversation for the Arizona Daily Star readers. And I wonder what kind of things you're hearing from the community right now. The stuff that I've heard or letters to the editors have uh, mostly been about wanting to keep it free and open as a nature spot. Um, there has been some letters to the editors um, saying that it would be good for the zoo to expand and create the tiger area. It seems like most of what I've seen, and at least the few people I've talked to, seem to want to keep it open. That's from my personal experience anyway. Well, David, in your research, did you find any contemporary connection between the Barnum family and our city? Are there any um, family members that still call Tucson home? Yeah, the um, grandson-in-law, Bruce Billings, um, who worked at the University of Arizona for many years, and then his son, Stephen, who is a teacher at Pima Community College. In fact, was my teacher on comparative religion at Pima Community College downtown. Huh, but you didn't know you'd be writing about him in this context when you were a student, I assume. No, many years ago when I took his comparative religion class, I did not think I would ever write about his family. Did you interview either of these family members for your article that's coming out next week? Yeah, I did interview Bruce Billings, uh, that's Barnum's grandson-in-law, for the article. Well, David, in closing here, what are some other things about the life of Willis Barnum that you think our listeners should remember? Barnum actually gave up very, very valuable land. He had a lease with the state of Arizona. He chose to allow it to be sold and gave up his lease so the city of Tucson could obtain it. He could have, with priority bidding rights on it, could have bought the land himself and actually sold it to a developer and made a lot of money off of it. So I think that's one of the important contributions that he did do is he chose to give up the land that he had already under lease and give up the house and the well that he had already built um, so that the city of Tucson could create a public golf course and park. How important has golf been to the history of this city, would you say? 
I think golf is a huge draw uh, for winter visitors here in Tucson. It brings in a lot of money and income uh, for our city. And I think Tucson has great weather for the golf. I think it's very, very important. According to a June 22, 1923 Arizona Daily Star article, Tucson had the highest golf course in the world at 7,800 feet on Mount Lemmon in the Summer Haven area. It was a mini golf course of six holes, uh, and it was quite a novelty at the time. My guest was David Layton. You can read his Street Smarts column about the history of Willis E. Barnum and Barnum Hill next Monday. That's February 1st in the Arizona Daily Star. It's estimated that 20,000 people in Pima County are living with Alzheimer's disease. For them, the pandemic is especially challenging. Most are at risk not only because of age, but also because memory loss makes it harder for them to follow safe practices. Last summer, Elisa Ivanitskaya spoke with Morgan L. Hartford, the Southern Arizona Regional Director of the Alzheimer's Association, Desert Southwest Chapter. Hartford shared steps that people with dementia and their caregivers can take to balance health risks with maintaining their quality of life. The COVID-19 pandemic continues to create these unanticipated challenges for people living with Alzheimer's and all other dementia and their families and their caregivers. For example, families are having to choose whether they're going to bring paid help into the home or whether they're going to do that care on their own. Families that may have been bringing paid help into the home may have more concerns now about exposure from a healthcare worker coming into their house. So they may bear more of a burden of that caregiving directly. And we're talking about the over 346,000 unpaid dementia caregivers in Arizona. When I read the advice that you usually give to people with Alzheimer's, A lot of these things are limited during the pandemic because we can't go out and socialize. How do you suggest to adapt? That's a great question. Living with Alzheimer's and COVID-19 and trying to increase access to socialization, for example, which we know is really important for quality of life and maintaining brain health and cognition over time becomes much more challenging when isolation is taking place. So what we're encouraging families to do as much as possible is to stay connected virtually if they have the option to do that. Maybe it's a telephone call with a family member or friend on a regular basis. We know routine is really important for people with dementia. So keeping a regular routine and building in some social activities with others via phone or internet when possible, it can be really helpful. Not everyone receives care at home. Many people are in care facilities. We know that not everybody is impacted equally with Alzheimer's disease. And because of that, we also know that they're not impacted by COVID-19 in the same way. We know that Black communities are twice as likely to have Alzheimer's disease 
than their white counterparts, and our Latinx communities are one and a half times more likely than their white counterparts to have Alzheimer's, which also means that they may need and may have a higher prevalence of care in long-term care facilities. That puts them to higher risk for COVID-19 as well. So the considerations for loved ones living in long-term care can be really stressful for the families that are there. Some families during COVID-19 actually try to keep their loved one at home maybe longer than they may be wanted to. They were planning for long-term care and decided not to, dealing with those challenges at home. For family caregivers with loved ones in long-term care communities, we know that that social isolation has been a really difficult thing to overcome. Do you know about any outbreaks in long-term care facilities in Arizona? We have seen some outbreaks throughout southern Arizona, and it can present real challenges in, number one, loved ones' ability to visit and stay connected with their family member, but certainly further increase the risk of transmission in between residents. Family members should be asking what the procedures are, number one, for managing COVID-19 risk in long-term care communities. should ask the staff there what the procedures are for managing COVID-19. Make sure that they have all of your emergency contact information or that of another family member as backup in case your loved one needs to go to the hospital or needs some kind of medical intervention. We want to make sure that family members know if there's been any signs or symptoms of illness in their loved one or themselves before they go to visit. That's really important as well, really monitoring those symptoms. Please forgive my ignorance. I still wonder if memories are lost. What's left from the personality? Because it feels like our identity consists of our experiences and our ideas about ourselves. Yeah, and it's a philosophical question that for us, the Alzheimer's Association, for all the families that are caring for a person with dementia, we know that a person is more than just our memories. We have all sorts of things that shape us. And certainly being able to recall those memories are often an important or part of who we consider ourselves to be, but we also have all these other preferences and aspects of ourself and identity that go beyond just our memories. And we encourage family members to try to tap into all of those senses to help bring a person out, um, even if they don't have explicit recall about those memories. The COVID made um, even healthy people reconsider their daily routines with washing hands, wearing masks. So what are the unique challenges for people with Alzheimer's? Some of the things that people with Alzheimer's dealing with during COVID-19 are just remembering that this is happening. We know that there are people out there and an increasing number of people living with Alzheimer's disease alone because they may carry on with their normal routine without thinking about putting a mask on or washing their hands as much. So it puts a great burden on family members to do constant reminders, often written reminders for their family members. The other part for people with Alzheimer's disease is that being exposed to the news about COVID-19 and the stress, the collective stress that we're all experiencing can certainly increase dementia-related behaviors like agitation, increased confusion that family caregivers have to deal with. Elisa Ivanitskaya spoke with Morgan L. Hartford, the Southern Arizona Regional Director for the Alzheimer's Association Desert Southwest Chapter. You can find a link and their hotline number at azpm.org. 
In the collection Once Into the Night, R. Lee Sheehan offers 57 short stories, ranging in length from two sentences to three pages. Most are written in first-person perspective. R. Lee Sheehan is a professor of creative writing at the University of Arizona and a receiver of the Catherine Doctorow Innovative Fiction Prize. Winter. I used to be all seasons or perhaps no season, but now winter lives within me. How much more real or cold or white is the winter I harbor than actual snow, thin air, the skies take this stake out. All the sinister season of floozy, profligate and neglectful, prone to the casual casualty, and also something more calculating, a plot, you not winning at cards or anything. The winteriest winter I know now is North Dakota winter, and that's not even my winter, it's my husband's winter. Dairy Queen tilting under a heap of white, cars left running in a smoking black parking lot, houses hot as static. But me, I was a child in my winter, at the ski lodge in Vermont, my parents a bustling concern, getting the lift tickets, buying hot chocolate in the clomping, melting din. We stayed at a white farmhouse on a lonely straight road. Across the street was a long field with a forest behind it and a fence in front of it. Field of white, the fence posts, glitches, acquiescence. You can't get it all. There is no master plan. Everything has a limit. Turn back to the house and the bedroom I share with Alex. A country breakfast, bacon, pancakes, orange juice. Did people really live in these mystifying locations so far from us? I bought a rabbit fur on the way home for a dollar and spent months, years, with the fur under my cheek at night. Me, the animal lover. Here is the little skin of a little animal that died violently. Here is what I think of winter now. A tall tree in a repeating forest, no underbrush, the snow a theme, shadow cylindrical and so long, just giant, passing over the solid, the logical, laying out over everything with disregard for your pettiness, and a light that comes from the turn of the earth, from planets colliding three trillion light years away, from a pebble turning under a collision of storms, the residue of time, death, passing, journey, deep, utter, ruthless aloneness, that's the kind of light. And by the tree is a rabbit, brown roll, terrified. Arlie Sheehan read Winter from her short story collection, Once Into the Night. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. AZPM's interim news director is Duncan Moon. The music is by Calexico. Production assistance from Yasmin Acosta. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.